Welcome to On the Edge with Eddie, detangling our black identities. I am your host, Eddie Etty. I am excited. I am overjoyed. I'm happy, elated for you to be joining our journey to explore all the different shades of black identities, have real conversations, and great discussions. I say this all the time. Our conversations, stories, and discussions are not meant to degrade, discourage, or prove a point. Exploring our Black identities is all about learning, empowering. It's about giving people a voice to tell their stories, and then at times be a voice for those people who don't feel comfortable telling their stories because, hey, there are people out there who are scared to tell the stories because you know um there is the bullying there's the uh retaliation and there are crazy people out there right so we want to be able to give people um a voice to tell their stories and if they don't want to tell their stories we tell their stories for them hashtag not all black people are the same hey so check this out today i have a superstar with me and i mean when i say superstar i'm talking about volleyball superstar Brie or such an amazing young woman. Listen, let me tell you a little bit about Brie in high school. And when I mean superstar, I mean Brie guided um, her team to the AAU National Championship in 2014, a USAJO National Champion in 2015. She was named the United States junior olympic all american mvp now okay so let's break that down for a second okay she is not only did not she not only the u.s junior olympic all american i mean she was the mvp right um she was selected the minnesota state high school league state all tournament team as a freshman um check this out 1271 kills 1,983 exists, 1,139 digs, 177 blocks, 116 service A's over her career. That's only in high school, yo. I don't know about you, but if you know anything about volleyball, that is insane amount of talent, okay? Um, So, and then she came to college in her freshman year, she had three matches with 50 or more assists, 13 matches with 40 or more, and 23 matches with 30 or more assists. As a sophomore, she led the team with a, a 1,242 assists and was second on team with Diggs from Egan, Minnesota. Bree has been involved in a lot of social um, injustice movement. She's passionate about helping people. She's passionate about speaking her voice. She has led a lot of, you know, powerful movement. Hey, listen, Bree, I'm going to stop talking and then have you talk. <laughs> Welcome to On the Edge with Eddie. How are you doing, Bree? <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be able to share my story with you today. Right on, right on. Yeah. So yeah, sorry that I mean I can I can keep going on about your introduction and all your achievement. Um, because I mean I've seen you play, you are insanely talented. 
Um, how did you get into volleyball in the first place? Like, was it just a passion or how, how did that happen? Yeah. So I have a lot of cousins on my mom's side and my sister and I are the two youngest. And so mm-hmm. all of our older cousins played volleyball. And so when we were younger, we just went to all of their games, watched them play and just wanted to be exactly like them. So that's what got me into it. And my mom yeah. put me in my first indoor uh, league when I was in second grade. Nice, nice. So you were playing volleyball with a whole bunch of grown-ups when you were a kid. Yeah. And so <laughs> which I'm pretty sure you probably dominated over <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, cousins and stuff like that. That that that's pretty awesome. But again, listen, you you I've seen you play like I said, insanely talented. You are totally amazing talent. But not even, you know, outside of the court, um, you're very passionate about the social injustice movement, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I've seen, you know, some of um, your posts on social media and it's, it's pretty powerful. Um, let me ask you this before we start detangling Brie. Uh, let me ask you, what, what, what was it for you? Why, why, were you? why are you so passionate about social injustice movement? Yeah. So when I was younger, it was always, I don't know, I felt like being mixed. I could never talk about it. I felt like no one really wanted to listen. And then once I've gotten through a couple instances in college where I felt the same way, it finally just like shattered for me. And I just really thought that my voice could be big for people that I'm close to, people that I'm not close to, little girls that have watched me play play volleyball throughout my life. Like, I just knew that if I told my story, maybe more people would learn mm. and be able to experience um, what I went through. Yeah. You know, and I am super excited that um, we get to hear your, your story firsthand um, because again, a lot of times, you know, when people, other people tell our stories, you know, there are things they don't, they don't show the emotions behind those stories. Right. Um, yeah. So again, I'm I'm excited to hear everything that you have to say. But let's take it back a little bit. Um, Egan, Minnesota. <laughs> what was yes. it like for you growing in Egan, Minnesota? Um, first of all, as a mixed person, right? Um, and you know, yeah. What was it like growing up there in Egan, Minnesota? Yeah. So when I was younger, I mean, I never really saw a difference. So I was. You know, everything was normal to me. Nothing really stood out. But as I got older, I realized, wow, there are not a lot of people in my schools that look like me. And there's not a lot of people in the shops around town that look like me. And so that's when I like really realized that, hey, I'm not like everyone else here because they're all white and I'm not just white. And so it was hard growing up. I always felt like I was too black for my white friends and too white for my black friends. And so that was a big thing that I had to really grow through. And I always felt like I was like the last person outside of all of these friend groups. Like if they were going to hang out, it's okay if I'm not there or anything like that. So it was hard growing up in friend groups, but then volleyball, a primary, primarily white sport. And so I was always the only black girl on my team with a couple exceptions once I got older, but um, that was another thing that I kind of had to face for sure. Was there, so again, you mentioned, you know, sometimes you're too black for your white friends and too white for your black friends, um, which is something that I hear all the time, you know, even, you know, me being, 
a black black man yeah. right i mean like from ghana africa black the people give me that vibe or even at the point tell me that oh you're too african right by too african that means you're not black enough right or yeah. you know and it's crazy to think that you know the culture that we live in people will think that you know your skin color is too much for you for them to socialize with right yeah. um and if you think about it that's like the dumbest thing ever exactly. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. it's like why why will my skin color determine whether or not if you want to hang out with me or not right yeah. um when did you realize like you were saying you know going through this and egan when did you realize that your skin color has something to do with how people treat you um so I think it was either first or second grade. Um, my dad, he played basketball overseas for 15 years when I was growing up. So he wasn't really around during school time. He always came back in the summer because that's when they had their off season. And so, um, I don't know, like when we went on field trips and parents would come, I'd have people say, oh, do you have a dad? I was so confused. I'm like, yeah, I have a dad. Like he, he's playing basketball right now. But I never realized like, no, that's a stereotype that, Right. other kids were learning as in first grade they were asking me this and so mm. um that's when I really started like realizing that you know that was totally a racial stereotype and they're not actually wondering right yeah what what how, how did you get over that right yeah <laughs> did, um, and how did, how did that affect you for sure. at a very young age too yeah so I felt like I was always trying to like prove that I had a dad. And so whenever he was back and we would have late field trips in May, June, at the end of the school year, I'd always beg for my dad to be the chaperone on those. I'm like, I have to prove to them that I do have a dad and I'm not lying to them. Like the, they always saw my mom, like drop me off at school or do this right. and that. And so I always felt like my dad needed to come on every field trip. <laughs> and so it was great. Cause I was able to hang out with him and go on a field trip but like right. looking back on it I was definitely trying to like overcompensate for how I was feeling right how about the rest of your elementary school um you know from you know from kindergarten all the way up to the say sixth grade um and you talk about you know your friend groups at a young age and being a mixed um individual how did that play into the type of friends that you had or people who wanted to be your friend yeah, so my elementary school, I, um, there weren't really like friend groups in elementary school. So I felt like I was friends with a lot more people and it was a lot less stress mm. in elementary school. So I felt like I was friends with everyone, black girls, white girls, anything, you know? And so, but once you got to high school, that's when it kind of split up. And so um, most of my black friends were girls that I played with on club volleyball teams from other schools mm. or but at my high school, the people that I was around the most, they were all white. And so I always felt like I was like the token black friend or like the person like just on the edge of the friend group. And so, right. yeah, high school felt like that a lot. And with a lot of like microaggressions here and there, not as much in high school friend groups, but definitely in high school volleyball with uh, coaches, teammates, everything. Let's talk a little bit about um, junior high. Was junior high the same thing um, 
and then we can get into high school a little bit. Was Junior had the same? I mean, again, you were still playing. You were in uh, club volleyball at that time, and probably that's when you really started playing volleyball um, in junior high as well, probably for your school. Um, was it was it any different, or were you still being treated the same? Um, definitely, junior high was kind of a mix, and so it felt like. Um, the microaggressions were getting worse than they were in like elementary school, but it wasn't nearly to the extent of high school. It felt kind of just like a middle ground, like nothing big really. And so middle school is middle school. Middle school is weird for everyone. <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> middle school is weird. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about high school because high school, what happens is high school is you really start finding your identity, right? You start finding who you are or trying to figure out who you want to be. Um, and then there's the added pressure of the microaggressions that you're talking about. There's the added pressure of, um, you know, the, the boyfriend, girlfriend relationships, there's yeah. the teachers, there's, you know, and then on top of that, like in superstar volleyball player, there is that pressure of performing all the time. Right. Yes. Tell me a little bit about your time in high school uh, from the perspective of a black girl, right? Um, and what was it like? Again, like you mentioned, you had a lot more white friends because volleyball was considered a white sport, right? You yeah. had a lot more white friends. What was it like for you in high school? Um, one, making friends and just going through that whole phase, trying to find out who you are, who you want to be, and all the microaggression, all the bullying. Yeah, so in high school, people would always say like, well, you're black, but you act like a white girl. And so that was kind of, um, I felt like I went with that in high school to just try to have friends. And so I didn't want to say like, that's rude in high school, because I mean, the goal was really to have friends in high school, as many friends as you can, a good like core friend group. So I definitely was kind of feeding into that. And so I never really talked about it with my white friends because they got very uncomfortable if I ever talked about social injustice or like even being black, it was always like, Oh, like they kind of felt like not threatened, but they didn't want to talk about it. They were uncomfortable. Right. And so with volleyball, I dealt with a lot of microaggressions from um, mainly coaches. It was like, um, Oh, well she jumps high because she's black or um, like you can't be a setter because you're black or black girls are always hitters right like stuff like that which is like i mean feeds into the stereotype. <laughs> yeah and it feeds into the stereotype of like the like angry black woman aggressive black woman mm-hmm. where you'd have to be a powerhouse hitter where it's like that has nothing to do with the position i play in volleyball wow how about um on the friend side um and also let me ask you this question did you feel at any point in time you were using volleyball um as a decoy or you were hiding behind volleyball as being a volleyball player yeah definitely i mean i had used that all the time like that was just my main identity being a volleyball player but people ask like what do you do? I'm like, oh, I play volleyball. I play for this volleyball club. I do this. And it was all just around volleyball because being a black athlete just seemed a lot more approachable than being a black girl. And so, yeah. And like with friends, it was always just 
kind of avoiding it. Like I felt like I was always avoiding the hard conversations until I really got to college. And so, and that comes with me having more confidence while I got to college. But I mean, friend groups, it was just always hard because I wanted to be able to talk about stuff and I wanted to be able to talk about the things that I really felt and was like passionate about. But I always kind of got like the, okay, like let's change the subject from my friends. So it was something that I just learned to not really talk about. Yeah. Did you experience, um, again, I was talking to uh, another student athlete in early episode. Um, As a black athlete, when you are on campus or you're in school, people recognize you as an athlete, right? They recognize you as a student athlete. Um, Now, a lot of recognition as a black student athlete, right? Mm -hmm. And and people will argue that, you know, maybe that's a good thing, right? I I get that. But when you leave school and you're not in that environment anymore, you are not a student athlete anymore. You're just another black person, right? And that's where I usually have the issue of, um, yeah, so you need me to perform for you to feel good about yourself, but you don't acknowledge me as an individual when I'm not in that environment that benefits you, right? Did you have any experience with yeah. that? Did you experience that? And can you tell me about it? Yeah, so in freshman year of college, pretty much throughout college, I would wear my whole volleyball attire, the big parka, Iowa volleyball sweatshirt. everything to class because it felt like I really wanted people to know and so I think that just goes along with it that at that point I was more comfortable with being a black student athlete than Mm -hmm. I was with being a black student at Iowa right and I felt like it kind of gave me some more like cloud on campus it made me feel better about myself and so yeah and ever since I've opted out I feel like I um kind of like lost a little bit of my voice for what I wanted to be doing because I don't have nearly as big of a platform now with volleyball. I could have had an interview after a game right. and talked about it, but now it's people aren't really interviewing me except <laughs> you, Eddie. So thank you. But I got you. Don't worry. I got yeah. you. We're going viral right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, so how did that affect you though? I mean, so again, that's, that speaks to the fact that again, you know, nothing against, you know, sports or athletics, you know, we love sports, we have athletics, but again, certain athletes do have a platform um, to speak, right? Um, Whether or not they choose to do it, that's up to them, right? But it seems that if you're not in that space anymore, it looks like you don't have a voice. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, How does that, how does that make you feel? Like, does it make you feel like you just like, what is wrong with this world or? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just remember having a ton of people that cared about me within volleyball, um, fans, donors, everything. And they genuinely cared and I felt great. But then after this summer, I feel like I wasn't getting nearly as much attention because now it felt like the divide between being a student athlete and being a black student athlete was just amplified because I wanted to make statements. I wanted to talk about my experiences, but it didn't seem like the people who were huge fans before everything were fans. Now they kind of just 
ignored the fact that I was speaking out and talking about something other than volleyball. And so that was definitely hard because it's these people that were like great people to me when I was in Iowa, like family away from my actual family, Minnesota, but now I'm distanced from them because I started talking about like the disparities that we are facing. Does it make you sort of think that people don't really want to talk about uncomfortable things or people don't want to have the real conversation that needs to happen for our society to change, right? Because again, if you are put it in a pedestal, that's one thing, right? But if you remove from that and all of a sudden you're able to share your thoughts and your mind, you're able to speak your voice, all of a sudden your voice doesn't matter anymore, (laughs) right? Um, I don't know. I I don't know how I actually feel about that. That's, 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 that's miserable. (laughs) It it was still is a little bit, but yeah. yeah. How do you, how do you transition from that though? I mean, how does that, you know, as, as a black woman um, who is passionate about, again, you know, speaking out against against microaggressions and, you know, speaking the truth to, um, you know, all the injustices happening. I mean, how does that make you feel <laughs> um, yeah. that one day you're like, everybody was all empowering you to have a voice and you can speak out and people listen. And the other day, because of a decision that you made that is personal to you, people don't want to listen to you anymore. Yeah. So it definitely hurt for the first couple of days or like, weeks even and then after I realized they're not worth my time if they don't want to listen to me being a black woman and not me being a black student athlete right like they were great fans when I was scoring points for Iowa but now they don't want to listen when I'm just me and so that was definitely hard because I know that I'm more than volleyball but Mm. for that first couple days couple weeks it felt like that I wasn't anything without volleyball, that I didn't really have a platform or a voice to really talk about myself and how the things that I've gone through when I was younger and into college, it just kind of felt like no one really cares anymore. And so that was really a crappy feeling, but now I've kind of learned their opinions don't matter. I'm going to do what I want, what I want it. And yeah, it feels very empowering to be able to say that yeah so let's shift gears and talk about what's happening in the world yeah (laughs) right there's there's a lot of a lot of things happening in the world um and it's it's really um it's I i don't know what emotions i want to use to describe it because it's one hurtful um it's a lot of times misunderstood right um, and talking about, you know, using your privilege as a weapon, people don't understand that concept. People yeah. don't understand the concept of white privilege. Um, you know, sometimes you talk about white privilege or you talk about privilege and people are like, well, no, um, you know, I grew up in a single home and I didn't really have anything growing up. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But the fact that 
because I get treated differently because of my skin color, it doesn't matter how we grew up, you still have an advantage, which is the privilege part, right? Um, and so there's a lot going on. But what I want to start with, I want to start with the George Floyd incident. Um, you are from Minnesota. Um, your father is black yeah. in Minnesota. Um, and I want to read something that um, you you mentioned in one of your posts that I find very um, um, empowering, um, really. And is you went to the, the George Floyd Memorial in Minneapolis. Um, and you had mentioned it was a beautiful, um, it was beautiful to see everything um, in the community. Oh, I can't even talk. It was beautiful to see um, what the community has done in his honor and to see everyone come out and protest for a better future. Um, and then you go on to say, this is not the end, but only the first step to a better future. Please do not stop talking about Black Lives Matter, the names of every single Black person who has been subject to um, police brutality. This movement is not a social media fad. It is It affects real people and no one can be silent. Stand with your community, make a change, and you want people to reach out if we want to talk about this. So your father is Black. Tell me what was going through your head or how you were feeling emotionally when you saw the George Floyd video being from Minnesota, having a black father? Yeah. So I was, I thought about it all the time. Like it was just kind of one of those things that was always in my head. Like that could have been my dad. Like if that could have been my dad, if he was pulled over, that could have been my dad. If he was on the street, it could have been him at any time. Mm. And so that was, just a lot to think about. And so I talked to my dad about it a lot. And so we had conversations about how he doesn't like driving. Like when it's our family, right. we always try to have my mom drive in case something happens. We know that it's a possibility. Right. And so my mom's usually the one driving. Or if we were late to school and we were in high school and we were like, come on, like, we're not driving yet. My parents are driving and my dad had to drive. We'd be like, come on, hurry. And he's like, I'm not speeding. Mm -hmm. And so when we were younger, we were always like, gosh, like, why won't he speed? We're going to be late for school. But it's like, we know why he's not speeding. Right. It's because he could be pulled over and we could be in the back seat when something terrible happens. Or I just remember talking to him and he said, yeah, I try to wear basketball clothes around as much as I can to show that I'm an athlete because he thinks like there's a difference and there is a difference. And so that is just, it was like mind blowing to me to actually have these conversations with my dad after kind of like lonely suffering of thinking like that could have been him. Right. Yeah. What, what was those conversations like um, when you were having them with your dad? Um, again, the, so the complication of being a black man, right, in the society that usually what happens is when you get pulled over, when you get stopped, or you get followed, people automatically automatically think you're a criminal, right? Yeah. And they prejudge you even before they even talk or get to know you. Um, what were those conversations like with your dad and what effects did they have on you um, as part of growing up? um, uh, a mixed growing up mixed. Yeah. So 
I just talking to him was great. Like I love being able to have those deep conversations with my dad. He's awesome. And so we just talked about really everything. And one of the things was he was talking about how pissed off he always gets when he gets pulled over as most people do. Right. And so he knows like, I, he said, I don't know if I'll be able to control my temper when I know that they're being rude to me because of me being black. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, and that could end me up in a totally different place because he knows that just the entirety, the thought of it would get him angry. Right. And so I'm like, he recognizes that. And he's like, so that would be like the worst case scenario because he knows that he would be upset before it even happened because of what has happened to other people. He knows it. And so just starting from there, right from the jump, he knows that it would not be a good situation. Um, When you were there at the memorial, um, you mentioned about sort of a powerful movement um, that somebody had, I think it was um, some lady ran by and said all four officers were uh, that were responsible um, have been charged. And yeah. there was this sort of like, I don't know if it was like uplifting or um, describe to me that point in time, what was happening around you um, yeah. in that moment at that memorial and how you were feeling in that time? Yeah, so we, yeah. the roads were closed. So we parked a couple blocks down and as we were walking, it was, it kind of felt like when you're in a graveyard and you start thinking about like the people that, have passed on and it's just kind of that like sombering feeling and so when we were getting closer it just felt more real and so with every step I was just kind of like felt that kind of like drain it like felt I felt super drained and so we were just walking and it was we stopped and looked at like the uh, pictures that people had put everywhere the flowers the portraits and it just really was hard, especially being so close to home. And I don't know, there was a ton of people there. It was a great atmosphere, but it was pretty sombering. And so once that was announced on the megaphone, everything changed. It just felt like there was so much more hope. And so it was a great feeling. Everyone was singing, dancing, chanting. There was uh, reporters everywhere taking videos there were different people just going up on um, like a box talking through the megaphone giving their all to just talk about what that means and so it was great because it was it wasn't just black people it was a mix white people black people everyone that was just all gathered there for support to remember and really just to provide hope for everyone. And so it was a incredible experience. I'll never forget it. Yeah. So after you, after you left that place, right? So again, you went through this emotional roller coaster and, you know, at the same time, it was, it was, um, there was sadness and there was uplifting and there was happiness. And, you know, there was just, you know, the realization that, you know, everybody, a lot of people want to see the change before like in, um, to make change happen. When you leave an environment like that, um, and go back to places like Iowa, right. Mm-hmm. 
what's the transition like mentally after going through that whole experience and you come back and you're experiencing sort of the same thing of, well, you're just back to being a a black woman again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was very different getting back to Iowa city. I mean, like the memorial, it wasn't violent. It wasn't anything. It just felt good. But then getting back to Iowa city, the marches there always turned violent. Mm -hmm. Like there was everything, rubber bullets, pepper spray. And so seeing that just kind of showed that there's different things happening wherever you go. And so it was hard to be back in Iowa for the summer and to know that this would be going on all summer because it was so much more uplifting in Minnesota. And so I felt good. I felt like I was doing something good. But then once we got back to Iowa, it was just kind of like it started all over again in that there wasn't going to be something that was like the spark of finding out that the officers had been charged. There wasn't any of that, but I still went and I supported and I listened and talked to my friends and so it was getting better, but it still wasn't as, it wasn't the same feeling for when I was at home and at the memorial. Yeah. What do you think is one of the biggest challenges we face um, as a society um, in sort of promoting the diversity, equity, and inclusion, or even um, the biggest challenge we face as a community or as a nation to recognize that when it comes to social injustice or plain racism, we're, we actually suck at it. Yeah. <laughs> right? We don't want to accept the fact that we're racist, right? We don't want to sure. accept the fact that there's social injustices. Um, and, you know, the, especially the systematic, um, you know, racism is at the core of the United States value, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think is, you know, some of the biggest challenges that we face as you fight um, yeah. for equal rights, as you fight for justice for all? For sure. Um, I definitely think that a big part of it is thinking that social justice is super political in the fact that um, it was an election year. So obviously people were thinking about it, but it was like Democrats and Republicans. And that's how it felt like. It felt like people that wanted to fight for social justice were Democrats. And if you were posting a Blue Lives Matter flag, that that was the Republican side of it. When it's like, it's not about who you want for president or certain things like that. It's about the people that have been torn down for Mm. hundreds of years, finally wanting more than what is given. Right. And so I feel like people just really thought that it was, Oh, well I can't support black lives matter because I'm a Republican or like, I'm going to vote for Trump. I can't, Mm. um, care about black lives matter or i think black lives matter is a hate group like stuff like that that i would see on twitter all over social media when it's like that's not the problem that's not what we're getting at like we just want better lives and for people to recognize what's happening and so i don't think i think a lot of people are closed-minded in the fact that it is like human rights it's not just right politics how do we fix that? <laughs> Honestly, 
how do we how do we fix that right because I, I struggle with that a lot right um yeah. i struggle with you know people again there are people who want to be part of the change there are people who uh both black and white who want to make a difference um you know um, you know, and I have some absolutely wonderful um, uh, white friends who will sacrifice anything to stop racism, right? Yeah. Um, but I struggle with the fact that the when it gets to the systematic part of it, the individuals who like you know my good white friends who was you know sacrifice anything, they don't even have the voice or the avenue to make those systematic changes, right? Sure. So how do we fix it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you I, fix the breeze? <laughs> I know, I know. How do, I, we figure I, it out? How, how do we fix this? <laughs> I have been doing the most that I can to reach my friends, the ones that are scared to post on social media, scared to talk to their friends, but they support me. But it's like, you need to try to reach out to the people closest to you and change their mind. Right. It's, I honestly think it's just a mindset where people are closed-minded they are stuck in what they want to believe and they're not open to listening about sort to listening to people's stories if they are it's more of a rejection and they think that they're being attacked instead of no I'm just trying to tell you what I've been through and so it all comes down to people being more open-minded in my opinion and caring about others yeah so you, there was a statement that um, you had said that after one of the, you went to one of the protests, I think it was here in Iowa City, and there was this speaker that had spoken, well, speaker had spoken, of course speakers, <laughs> duh, Eddie. Sorry, I had a moment of, you know, um, on clarity there for myself. Um, but you had mentioned, you know, my favorite takeaway from the speaker was that going to a protest is great, but it does not matter. Um, what you're doing at home to stop racism and educate your family. Oh, what are you doing at home to stop racism and educate your family and friends? Um, we are not done now or, or ever. Um, keep fighting and being the best support you can for the Black community, like you were just saying. Um, what can people do at home to stop racism and educate their family and friends? What would you suggest people do? Yeah, so I've definitely gotten to the point sometimes where I'm like, I'm so sick of trying to teach people when they can do it themselves. Mm. And so, yeah, but Black I, speak. yes, yeah. so <laughs> okay. I've just kind of, um, I don't know. I got to the point where I was like, you know, it's worth it for me to send the articles. It's worth it for me to have the conversations that are hard for me with some people. And so I have gotten sick of it, but I've gotten to the point where, you know, if I see that I'm helping one person, a couple people, that's worth it for me to take time out of my day. And so, yeah, I've kind of gotten over the fact where I don't want to talk about it because I know that it does help people, especially my close friends that have that are from small towns and have haven't really experienced it, don't really have a lot of black friends. And so me being their black friend, right. I feel like it's worth it for me to talk about how I feel. Yeah. And it makes me feel better too to talk about it. Yeah. Absolutely. So I I let me um I'm gonna push back randomly and push you in a difficult position. Yeah. Um 
what would you tell people that are like, well, sorry, Brie, you, you, you're light-skinned, you have a white mom, like, you're not really black. Like, what, what do you have to worry about? Yeah, and that's happened to me in college, <laughs> the exact situation. And really? So, so yeah. you actually have people tell you that? Yes, where we've had Did you smack them or <laughs> yeah i mean i was just always like the little silent crier i'm like i'm gonna leave yeah. but um yeah i mean that has happened to me before and my main thing i'm not white passing people don't look at me and think she's white right if i am filling out something and it says what's your race ethnicity everything yeah. i never pick mixed because I feel like that's too broad on those things. Yeah. It always says mixed race. It doesn't ask, what are you mixed with? You can't pick two options. Mm. And so I always put black. Because if someone look, if I put white, people would be like, is she crazy? Right, exactly. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. And I don't like picking mixed because I feel like that takes away from both my mm. identities. And so, yeah. you know, I, it's hard because I've definitely been left out of, well, us black girls and then names that I'm not included in. And that's happened to me where it's like, it hurts a lot because, you know, like I said, I'm not white passing. Right. Like if someone looks at me, they're going to say, Oh, she's black. If someone's explaining me to a friend, they'd say, Oh, my black friend Brie. Right. I'm not white friend Brie. So that's one of those things where it's just like, not a lot of people have talked about like their mixed experience, but that is a huge thing. I have mixed friends that have like have experienced the same thing. And so it's hard. I try to talk about it as much as I can, but it's always looking for the right person to talk to it about. Yeah. Well, Hey, listen, I am, I, I am so excited. I am super glad and happy that, you know, we're actually able to have this conversation because again, there's a lot of people out there um, who probably are in the same boat as you or who don't understand the difficulties or the complexities of, you know, being, being missed. Right. Because, you know, it, it's the whole identity thing is for you, like you said, it's hard for somebody to just say, oh, you're missed, right? You're, you, you, you are an offspring of a black man and a white woman, but that is, that is not defined your identity, right? Um, and yeah. it's hard to actually sort of say, well, hey, you are, you know, who you are because of your parents, right? Mm-hmm. But the way you get treated is different, right? Because, you know, like, again, like you said, when somebody looks at you, you're like, yeah, you're a black girl, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But the fact that people are passing comments or make comments that, oh, you know what? Yeah, you're, you're like, you know, too white to be black yeah. <laughs> right like that's a thing um you know i think one of these days i might have to do a research to figure out what that actually even means um yeah. you're too <laughs> black too, too black to be you know or too white to be black like like seriously um but no I, i'm seriously you know excited that you know you're able to share your story and share your experiences um so i want to ask you about um the Brianna Taylor, mostly because from the female perspective. Yeah. Um, here is a black woman sleeping, haven't done anything. Yeah. Um, in her own bed, shot dead. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
she didn't even have a, a fighting chance. She didn't have to struggle. She didn't have to even voice her opinion, right? Yeah. Like you were saying, you know, sometimes your voice is taken away, right? And she didn't even have a voice, right? And all of a sudden, she has been removed from this world, right? Yeah. As a Black woman, what does that do to you? Yeah, for me, it's just being a woman first, your voice is not a priority of some people. It's lower priority in all cases. And then being a Black woman on top of that, like the lowest of the low. And so it's hard because you're battling two different things at once that are against you. And so hearing about that was absolutely horrible. She didn't have any chance she did nothing wrong and she was killed in her sleep and that's something where it's like why don't if you are so concerned about bringing justice have a conversation killing someone is not the first step that should be taken in any scenario like with mass shootings the person doing the shooting is always the one that leaves alive right and it's why can't you have that conversation? Why does it always have to resort to violence instantly? And same with George Floyd. No one asked him if you did anything wrong. It was assumed and he was killed. Yep. And so just her not being able to say anything and she can't anymore is just absolutely horrible. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm so glad that there are people like you who will carry on Brianna Taylor's voice and the George Floyd's voice and all the countless um, amount of Black individuals, unarmed Black individuals who have been shot and killed and all the social injustice movement going on and all the racism. Um, and I truly believe, you know, it's your generation who are, hard, who are working so hard to promote and educate. Um, and I, I strongly believe that when change comes, it's going to come from all the fighting that you guys are doing now, you know, specifically for all the things that you are doing now, just getting your friends and family. But I think the systematic part of the changes will come from, you know, all the good work that you're doing and your friends are doing and educating and just standing out and speaking up um, you know, so again, I am, you know, forever blessed to see you play on the court, forever blessed to, you know, know you and talk to you and just, you know, such a wonderful, um, radiant human being you are. Um, and I am so glad you were able to join us on the edge with Eddie um, and, you know, tell your story. Um, this is not the end, though. Um, there's a lot more to come with Rior. Um, hey, listen. You're amazing. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing you. Uh, Before I let you go, though, what I want to do is I want to give you a minute to give a shout out to the world and also educate the world. What do you want the world to hear from Brie or in one minute? Yeah, so I just think that people really get a lot from opening their mind and listening to people. Don't stay in your current beliefs it's not wrong to change your opinion it's actually even better you can change your opinion and grow from that and i think that's something that everyone can learn from 
Nice, nice. Hey, listen, you heard it from Brie Or. True wisdom will enable man to judge other people with an impartial mind, right? So again, you know, open your mind, open your hearts, get to know people. Um, just spend some time understanding people before you judge them, right? Because not everybody is the same, right? Um, again, like I said, we're on the edge with Brie Or. Hey, listen, Brie stinks like a bee on the court. She is amazing. Um, and again, as a human being, though, you are down to earth and you're truly amazing. Thank you so much for being on the edge. It was an honor. Hope to Thank see you, you so soon. much, Eddie. Keep it was awesome. Yes. And we'll definitely chat more. So, 